there's an inner observer that's sort right. of observing and and noting and commenting on the things you do. Oh, now I'm feeling like this. Now I'm experiencing this. Now I'm worried about this. Now I'm thinking about what I'm having for dinner. You know, a, a witnessing consciousness that is non-judgmental, but that is observing and and registering what you're thinking, feeling, and doing. Um, because there's that famous Viktor Frankl quote about between stimulus and response, there is a space, and in that space lies our freedom. Welcome, I'm your host Stefano and this is When Leaders Talk, a podcast about leadership and most importantly about leaders. Self-awareness is one of those topics I will never get tired to talk about, especially with people like Beatrice Chestnut, the guest of today's podcast. Well, Beatrice is many things. She's a psychotherapist, she's a coach. She's a leadership consultant. She's the author of two books, plus another book she co-authored. And most importantly, she is, uh, she defines herself as the student of Enneagram. She's been studying Enneagram for 30 years. Basically, she is a master of Enneagram. And Enneagram is all about self-awareness. More than anything, actually, Enneagram is about growth and getting better. Because as we define in this conversation, Enneagram is not just a profiling, it's, just, it's, more like, it's more like acknowledging who you are, what are your weaknesses and flaws and blind spots, and what you can do to improve. The conversation, so of course, touches upon Enneagram a lot, and uh, also on the experience of Beatrice as a person, as a leader herself, and uh, what are the challenges that she faced despite all those years knowing her Enneagram type and what Enneagram is. So there is a lot to unfold even today, and I really invite you to listen carefully to what she said. Before leaving the floor to Beatrice, subscribe to this channel so we can keep having great guests like Beatrice. And uh, you can follow me on social media like LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Plus, if you want to have more information about my coaching and also the Enneagram that I use, I'm a practitioner Enneagram, please uh, check my website, masteryourc.com. And with no further ado, Beatrice Chestnut. Beatrice, you are an expert of leadership. You wrote a book about leadership. So what is your definition? Of leadership? Well, I heard a definition that I liked one time from a friend of mine who's also a leadership consultant, and she, she defined leadership as taking responsibility for your influence. Um, and I like that, but I, what I would add to that is being conscious of aware, and aware of serving as a model for others um, so leading not only in what you might do or say or teach people, but um, leading by example, sort of, and being a conscious person who's, um, you know, always trying to do the best that they can 
uh, to be an example for others so that they will do the same. Okay, and there are examples and examples, right? <laughs> and uh, you, I know you are many things. You are a coach, you are a leadership consultant, you are author of books, you are, uh, well, you, you define yourself as a student of Enneagram. I will consider more like a, like a black belt of Enneagram. I mean, compared to me, I'm more like a beginner level. Um, so I guess you have a pretty wide experience in leadership, right? And when we talk about leading by example, uh, what is the the trend that you have seen? You know, especially especially nowadays. What is what is the uh, the, uh, the type of leadership that you uh, have observed the most in these days? Well, uh, uh, something I'm happy to see, especially among the leaders I work with, is a movement toward leaders understanding that um, emotional intelligence is a vital part of leadership and of just working together with other people. Um, and part of that, you know, part of emotional intelligence is becoming self-aware, um, understanding your own thoughts and feelings and why you do the things you do so that you can manage yourself with awareness when you're leading others. Um, but also the empathy for others and uh, the skill to interact with others in ways that uh, where you're open to understanding other people's experiences, but also open to being honest about your own. Um, and I find that when leaders can share their experience of growth or their experiences with different things, um, that's the most inspiring and impactful thing they do uh, because other people have then a role model for, you know, what is best a best practice or, what is the way to be in the world that allows for more connection and more um, mutual understanding and just people getting along more? And in this world today, it's really needed. It is needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is needed, especially because I know many leaders, I guess, they are so much result oriented yes. and they forget about everything else. Right. And I guess the people that come to work with you are those who actually understand that is something else is is needed right it's, they won't achieve something something more and they see people like you as um a good instructor a consultant or a coach you know depending on how they approach it and uh, the, the type of uh help they need of course um and I want to go back on what you said about self-awareness because I, I do consider, I mean, it's not like I, I have an original idea, but self-awareness, it is the starting point for, you know, any, if you want to have success in your life, in your sport, in, in, in business, whatever, you need to be self-aware and self-aware has a deep meaning, but you know, what, what is the meaning that you give? What does it mean to be self-aware? It's a good question. I think it means... Um, the ability to um, have an inner witness that's activated most or all of the time. So in other words, you know, it's like they talk about in meditation, there's an inner observer that's sort of observing and, and noting and commenting on the things you do. Oh, now I'm feeling like this. Now I'm experiencing this. Now I'm worried about this. Now I'm thinking about what I'm having for dinner. You know, a, a witnessing consciousness that is non-judgmental, but that is observing and and registering 
what you're thinking, feeling, and doing. Um, because there's that famous Viktor Frankl quote about between stimulus and response, there is a space, and in that space lies our freedom, right? So when we when we create more space between that part of us that can be consciously reflective about what we're doing, and that part of us is just doing what we're doing, then we can manage ourselves with more a sense of, oh, I, I said that thing and it might've been a mistake to say it, but why did I say, oh, I said it because I was angry and I didn't realize I was angry. And so the more I can be honest with myself about my motivations, my feelings, my thoughts, my assumptions, my beliefs, the more I can work with those things and be more adaptable to others, be more flexible in what I do, be more compassionate with myself and others, and I think the self-awareness part is just becoming more and more able to understand what you're doing so that if what you're doing isn't working, you can change. Because I think part of what happens is we get so much locked into unconscious patterns and habits that we just keep doing the same thing over and over again, often when it's really not working for us or other people. And we have no mechanism with which to recognize, well, what am I doing and what, how am I affecting others? And how can I make some space? You know, that's the self-awareness to see what that is and shift course if that's uh, what would make things better. Right. And sometimes we think that things don't go well because of events or the others it's never us right it's hard to me that it's actually us that we're not going not going uh, well and actually i love that you mentioned one of my favorite books is seven habits for successful people it's it's a great book and i really recommend everyone listening today uh is i think one of the really cornerstone for uh self-improvement um like so i put the book aside <laughs> so how and this is now we're going to enter in your field is uh, i guess the enneagram so the, the enneagram is a tool if you want i don't want to diminish the meaning of it but it is a way to achieve self-awareness isn't it what is what is that you can say about about enneagram mm -hmm. so the enneagram is it's a personality typology of nine different interconnected types um but it's also a a growth tool. It's it's a it's a method or a, a way of developing more awareness. And one of the things that's really powerful about the Enneagram is that these nine types that it describes are really accurate <laughs> in describing these nine categories of people. And before I knew the Enneagram, I would never, I would have said that there was nothing that could really describe the complexity of the human personality with a lot of precision. It's just not possible. You know, people are too complicated. And, you know, the, the personality typologies I had seen so far were at best, you know, kind of estimates that didn't come close to the reality of the lived experience of the person. But when when I came to know the Enneagram, I, you know, it was a total shock because when I read my type, um, it was it was describing so much of what I knew to be true about myself. And even the part about that it described about me that I didn't like or didn't want to own, when I really thought about it, I had to own it because it was true. I just didn't want to see it because it was uncomfortable to admit, you know, things that I saw as not good things. 
Um, but the the Enneagram starts from the idea that we all identify with a personality or who we it's who we think we are, but our personality is not really who we are. It's a part of who we are that develops to survive in the world starting in childhood and then to be functional and to survive and get what we need. Um, and when we reach adulthood, we sort of take our personality to be equal to all of who we are, but actually it it's actually something that limits us from being all of who we are. And so the Enneagram takes the point of view that if we learn about our personality patterns, and it really describes personality as a, a particular sets of patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving, if we can really see our patterns, um, we can realize how we're more trapped in them than we think we are. And they limit us in ways that we don't realize because they're just so so familiar. We've been doing them for so long, we don't question it. It's like the air we breathe. Uh, but the Enneagram kind of shines a light on the fact that you're doing this and you're, these are your patterns. And sometimes it, they work and they're a good idea, but other times they don't really work, but you apply them even though they don't work because it's all you know. Um, and so it, the Enneagram takes the point of view of that if we learn about our personality and our patterns, it helps us to actually disidentify from our personality, to recognize that, oh, this is not all of who I am. It's actually... Um, keeping me back from expressing and manifesting all of my higher potential, um, which and so it's almost the idea of using the, learning about one's personality style as a vehicle to greater expanded self awareness and to being able to go much beyond the personality. Um, and so it's like it's sort of the idea that we adopt a false self. Uh, to get along in the world. And by seeing what that false self is, it actually helps point the way to our true self uh, or an, a more essential self or a higher self. And of course, the Enneagram is psychological and spiritual, but you can don't need to even talk in psychological or spiritual language. And when I would use it with leaders, I just use very practical language. Yeah, I know. And uh, th this one important thing that you say that Enneagram doesn't put you in a box actually is is a way to get out of the box. You know, it, it is a starting point for a way to be a better person. If you are a leader, since this this podcast is dedicated to leaders, is dedicated to leaders. If you are a leader, that's how you can be a better leader, a transformative leader. You can get out of others. For example, I'm I'm. A type eight that is the uh, active controller. So, in short, the definition is I like when things are under my control, right? <laughs> uh, and this is something that is important to understand because I understand where my frustration is, right? When what is the root cause of my anger and this kind of emotions, negative emotions? How I can counter, right? Or manage right it's it's hard to counter you can manage probably it's, it's a better word for it that's what i love about it but let me let me uh play the role of the devil's advocate because i guess one of the questions that you have heard many times is like oh but it's like uh, 
is like um you know only nine types uh, is like uh, the zodiac you know like that you have to have signs actually there are less than the zodiac so what is it you know and every every each of us is so different how can you uh profile a person based on only nine types so one of the many fascinating things about the enneagram is that it also stem, it stems from ancient spiritual wisdom, uh, which sees numbers as principles and having a deep uh, meaning that's that are connected to kind of the laws of the universe. Right? We see this a little bit in Pythagorean, you know, theory. The Pythagorean theorem being based on geometry and number. So the the number nine is a really important number if you study, you know ancient wisdom and the things they say about the meanings of all of the numbers. So it comes from that kind of tradition. That's one thing. Uh, but the other thing that I want to say is that the Enneagram is a symbol of unity and multiplicity, meaning there are, you know, of course, millions of different individuals in the world, and we're all unique in our way. And yet, just like in nature, we see certain patterns occurring, like certain trees or certain flowers that have certain amount of petals or fish, or we can see certain patterns in the natural world. The Enneagram is, is another way of showing how these same natural patterns also apply to human beings. Um, and so even though we're all different, there are these nine different patterns that Again, it, you don't have to take my word for, for it. You know, if you sort of start, if you learn about the Enneagram and start seeing all the people in your life, you know, I've never met someone who didn't fit into one of those categories. You know, some people don't want to, they're into, into it. They don't want to know what category they fit into and that's fine. Um, but I think there's, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, it, it be, it's beyond the scope of this discussion to say why nine, but suffice it to say there's a real significance to that number nine and, and to all of the numbers. And the Enneagram symbol and the system is also based on the law of one, the law of three, and the law of seven, and the way these come together in a circle of nine types. So the, that there's, you, there are books you can get that, that where you can read about all the deep meaning behind these numbers and what they signify. I'm happy to ask you this question because not because I don't know what the anagram is, because I was amazed by listening your your definition of it. My is much simple when people ask me, and I was like, but you are of course right. I mean, it's like there are I don't know how many millions of oak trees for example but every tree is different from the other and, and i can see in my family i am as i say earlier a type 8 my wife she's a type a too and yeah there are pretty evident differences other than this impulse to have everything under control this sometimes makes things interesting <laughs> but that's the fun part right because what is beautiful is uh, the the self awareness part, you know, the know the acknowledging that that's how I am. So instead of reacting in a way that can be harmful for the both of us for our relationship, I now I try to be to 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 be behave in a different way. But it's, mm -hmm. it's a it's a it's a very um, complex conversation. Uh, I will say through the lens of of um, enneagram and what is the type 
of leadership that you have observed the most, especially in people, in, um, successful leaders? Let, let's define this. I mean, on, I know that the definition of success can be very subjective, but you know, trying to um, generalize a little bit. Mm -hmm. So is the, is the question, how have I seen the Enneagram sort of feeding into a good kind of leadership? Well, or? yeah, what, what are the common traits of, or the most common type of, of uh, the Enneagram type among those successful leaders? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, read, I wrote a book called The Nine Types of Leadership. And one of the reasons I called it that is because I think sometimes we think that there are certain kinds of, certain types that are leaders and certain types that aren't you know, or certain types that are good leaders and other types that aren't. So I would say, first of all, that I think any of the nine types can be a good leader. Now, depending on what culture you're in, because I, so I live in the United States and in the U.S. culture, you see certain types gravitating more to leadership positions because of the culture, right? We're a three culture. Um, so threes do very well in uh, corporate America and become leaders very easily. Now, three is also a type that tends to like to be in leadership positions generally, as well as eights, for instance, you know, uh, because they're results oriented, they want to make things happen, they move into action, they see the big picture, they're not afraid to have necessary conflicts. So there are reasons why I would say threes and eights, you see them in leadership a lot, especially like in the US, in a different culture, it might be different. Um, but I, I think it's important to recognize sort of what the qualities are of a good leader. And that could be kind of a longer list. And I think there are some types that have real strengths, real um, leadership capacity that are very valuable that some culture may not always value or see, or it might not be at the top of the list of what people value. But generally, I would say one of the things that I think makes for a really good leader is the capacity for humility. Um, and you probably know the books uh, by Collins, Good to Great, right? And it, he studied how, what what made certain companies make that leap to being really great, you know, by a certain definition. And what he found, one of his big findings was it was a humble leader. Uh, and why humility? And I think it's because humility means you're not just acting from your ego, um, a leader, now it's tricky because certainly we can look out in the world and see a lot of people who have attained high leadership positions that have a lot of ego, right? Um, but, you know, I think in the long run, um, those are people who inflict a lot of damage sometimes. Those are people that even if they're successful by some measures, actually are unsuccessful by a lot of measures as well. Um, and may only succeed because they're tolerated in ways they probably shouldn't be. Uh, but I think my definition of leadership would include humility, because I think if you are willing to realize you're not the center of the universe and you're willing to take feedback and course correct and not think you're always right about everything, um, I think humility is super important. And I think there's, for instance, which is why type nine might be a good leader, because there you get a leader who's not doing it just for what they're going to get out of it. You know, they're not, they tend to not be self-interested. They tend to be interested for what's good for the whole group or the whole. Um, and so I think one of the reasons why I wrote, I called it the nine types of leadership is I think it's good for everybody to own their leadership capacities, their strengths, and to own them and, and, 
you know, act from them in more conscious ways. Um, and also to be open to seeing what they do as leaders that aren't so good, you know, that, that to, to really take in feedback from what's not working, for instance, type three, you know, tends to look like a good leader, they're results oriented, they work really hard, they get a lot done. Uh, they're oriented toward the icons of success. They have, they know how to sell things. There are a lot of good things about threes when it comes to being a leader. However, if you do a, a like a leadership feedback survey, a 360 for a three leader, even one who's really successful, you might find things like nobody trusts that person. You know, people feel like they can't connect to them personally. Um, people feel like they don't, they don't inspire trust. You know, and these are also really important things for leaders, especially in certain circumstances and in certain moments. Um, so I think it's good for us. One of the things the Enneagram really does for leadership is it helps us step back a little bit and say, okay, how are we going to define good leadership in a more, in a larger way and not just see it in terms of a particular culture or a particular organization or a particular style? Because I think Every style has upsides and downsides when it comes to leadership. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And that's, I, I, rem I remember months ago, I've listened to one of, you have a podcast with Randy Pius, it's called Enneagram 2.0. Uh, it's a beautiful podcast. If you like Enneagram, I recommend it. And actually, months ago, I've listened to this uh, episode where you were trying to uh, understand some leaders, world leaders, you know, what type of, of uh, what underground type they were. And it was such an interesting conversation because actually you can see that really they, there is a broad spectrum. It's not like they all type eight or three, as you say, and three is the achiever just for, uh, is the one that actually can exhaust the, the team, the, the team members working with them. Yeah. Where the nine is more the, the negotiator and it's, uh, I remember, so I sent down, I wrote down, I, I listened again to it you know, the other day, just for, for this uh, interview when you define Zelensky as a, a type two, Trump as a type eight, Hitler as a type six, that was surprising for me. Uh, and uh, Obama as a type five, actually type nine. I think Ronnie was more, more on the type five. Yeah, it's fun. It's, yeah, yeah. it's an interesting exercise, right? I mean, of course, it's not like these people has been subjected to a test, so it's hard to assess unless you know them very well. But it gives you an idea. I mean, and, um, when is when was the first time that you actually uh, tried the enneagram ahead of test? What what did you what did you find? As actually, the the, the real question is the moment in the moment. What did you learn about yourself? When I first learned my type, yeah. So yeah, I I just rec I I took me I didn't take a test for many years, um, but I just found my type by reading uh, my first Enneagram book. In my case, it was Helen Palmer's first book on the Enneagram, and. Um, Someone told me, you know, I think you might be a two. So of course I went right to the two chapter and read that. And it was like everything fit, right? It was amazing. I couldn't believe like it was describing what I was like so completely and thoroughly and describing it in ways that I wouldn't have necessarily expressed it, but it made even more sense, you know, um, like, like, you know, the way that 
twos, you know, my type is a two. It's a, it's a type that's sometimes called the giver or the helper, um, but it's very oriented toward other people and kind of making other people happy or, or supporting others so that they'll support me, you know? So it's a little bit like I, I try to make you like me. So you'll indirectly meet my needs because twos don't want to ask for what they need because we're really sensitive to rejection. So when I read it all, it was just, it was mind blowing. It was shocking how accurate it was. And I mean, it, changed my life in that moment because it was almost like I found something that existed in the world that I never thought could exist in the world. Um, something that was deep and accurate enough in helping me understand myself in a way that was that I just didn't think possible. So, and I also quick shortly after that got introduced to some of the spiritual teaching behind the Enneagram, which only deepened my understanding and my interest more. Um, so from the first moment, I not only recognized myself and learned so much about myself, like it said, twos can be manipulative, right? And I never would have called myself manipulative, but when I really thought about what manipulation really is without the negative connotation, it's moving things around behind the scenes to get what you want, you know? I was like, I totally do that all the time. And that was a that was great, even though it was uncomfortable and painful to recognize that in myself. It was also liberating because now I can see what I'm doing with more clarity and I can make more conscious choices. Do I want to keep doing that or do I want to start learning to work against that? You know, because I don't want to be that kind of person that manipulates people. There is there is the, the component that we, we uh, you actually mentioned earlier, there's humility, right? You need you need to understand your flaws and accept them and, and start from there to be uh, a better person, a better leader. Uh, and more than that, I mean, you've been practicing or studying Enneagram for 30 years now. Is there still anything that is missing? That you, what is the, the aspect of your personality you, you find hard to change? You know, I think there's a lot that's hard to change. I think that you know, one of the things we learn with the Enneagram is how hard it is to change. <laughs> we think it's easier than it actually is when we really try. I mean, I think there's some things that I've succeeded in changing. Like, I think I care a bit less that everyone likes me and I don't go out of my way to help people if I really don't want to. Um, but I do think that there are some things like like focusing on on important other people in my life too much, like focusing on like what's going on with them? Like, what are they thinking about me? What's the status of our connection? You know, when, it, when instead it's more fruitful and productive for me to focus on what's going on inside me, you know, because that I'm giving that person too much power to approve of me or uh, validate me. And I'm giving away my power and it may not be anything that does anything good anyway. Like that, it, it often doesn't improve your connection with someone else if you focus too much on that connection. Sometimes they're putting too much pressure on it or you're putting too much importance on it instead of having things more in perspective. You know, even your closest relationships, they're, it's a relationship. It's one of several relationships and you also need a relationship with yourself. So I think it's still hard for me to, I, oh, another thing that's still really hard for me to change is 
sometimes when I'm feeling a strong emotion and as a two, I'm a heart type. So there's three types that live more in the head, three types that live more in the heart, three types that live more in the body intelligence. I'm a heart type. And I think sometimes when I'm feeling a strong emotion or I'm in a, a, a mood, it can be very hard for me to shift out of that mood in a conscious way. It's almost like, you know, yesterday, for instance, I was in a very bad mood. It was very negative, um, a lot of emotion, mostly sadness. And it was just like, okay, I know this is all coming from my ego. I know this is not good for me. It's not productive. It's, you know, it's, you know, potentially causing damage, you know, because of the way I interact with people when I'm in that mood, but I really had a hard time shifting it. Now I did some things yesterday and even though it didn't shift yesterday to this morning, I woke up and I felt better and I did some, some of the things I did yesterday, I think, you know, helped me today. So I think I had some success, but it st can still be very hard, like getting in a bad mood for a few days, you know, and not being able to shift out of it or not being able to bring back the focus to me or shift my focus to something more positive. If I'm worried about something, for instance, those things can still be hard. Well, I see is that there is a lot of willpower, right? I mean, you, it's not, it's not easy, as you say, change is never easy. And, and. Um, especially when you are not a, a kid anymore, a anything you want to introduce in your life, it, it gets harder, but it's not, it's not impossible. It's just a little bit harder probably. What is this keeping you going? What is the, 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 uh, the energy? What, what is the source of the energy with is keeping you with power, battery charged and despite all those difficulties that you might encounter every day? I think it's a good question to ask about willpower because I do think that once you start mapping out your patterns, changing is often an act of will. You know, anything that you do differently is an act of will. Like you're making a decision and then you're really marshalling your inner resources to really do something about that. And it can even be like an act of will in meditation to notice how your thoughts drift and bring your attention back to a, fo a particular focus like your breath. Um, so I do think it's good to uh, to focus on willpower. I think what keeps me going is that there's so much work that needs to be done in the world to make it a better place. Um, and especially around what I do, which is helping people be more conscious. You know, I think if you look around, there's so much, so many hard things happening in the world, you know, wars and divisions and, um, you know, and, you know, how do we work against that, you know, when we're just individuals? And for me, it's about doing good work in the world to try to help people be more aware so that they don't act from anger, so they don't act from self-interest only. Um, they are more aware of how what they do impacts others, and they're more humble. And I think if that increases in the world, uh, then, you know, everything gets better. Um, and when we each do our part, I think it it sort of starts adding up. And I, you know, I'm lucky to be in a position to be teaching and leading inner work retreats and teaching coaches and therapists how to work better with people using the Enneagram. So I think what keeps me going is the hope that I can have a positive impact um, through the work I do. Would you define this as your life purpose? 
Probably something like that. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, the nice thing, sort of a positive uh, thing of what I do, a perk is that when I work on myself, I'm supporting the work I do in the world, right? It's, it goes together. You know, I'm, I'm a training by training. I'm a psychotherapist. And when you become a psychotherapist, of course, you must go to psychotherapy yourself, you know? And so, you know, I don't know if I hadn't been a psychotherapist, if I would have done 16 years of psychotherapy as a client myself, but it was really important for me that I did that and it, and it enhanced my life. Um, but I think it's, it, it, I have that sense of responsibility to the work I do to be also, you know, I don't ask anyone else to do anything that I'm not willing to do. So if I'm trying to help someone confront their ego and be more conscious, I want to be doing that same thing myself. Um, so I think that's, you know, it also makes life better when you feel like you're on a trajectory where you're taking action to make things better for yourself and to be happier and less, less anxious and less depressed. And um, although I can still feel depressed and anxious, I've gotten better and better over time through the work I've done. And so I hope to bring that same kind of opportunity to other people. Yeah, I think, I, I honestly think that the life purpose is really the, the, the primal source of willpower or energy and or how you want to call it and whenever we feel we are detaching from this trajectory and that's where our motivation and energy starts decreasing and going down and we feel um tired anxious depressed and so on and so forth and whenever we are able to go back on track that's when we really feel passion you know and that's but not not all the people i will say are able to really understand what what's their life purpose how did you get to that what was the the the, the tool or the tools or anything I, you might have used to really understand what is the purpose of your life yeah i mean i, I it's interesting because when i was in college when i left university um I really didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. It was really hard for me to find my life purpose. I will say, I think, um, I think when I really started finding it was through psychotherapy. You know, when I went to therapy, I really had to start looking at what do I really want to do? What really draws me? And I hadn't been connected enough to myself to know what that was because I was looking outside myself all the time. So when I went to psychotherapy, it helped me really with someone else's help, really look at myself, like, how am I feeling? What's true for me? What do I want? What do I not want? And it was that process. I mean, as a two, again, that's not easy because I could tell you more how other people are feeling than how I'm feeling at that time, although I'm much more in touch with my feelings now. Um, so it was, it was having that sort of space where, you know, once a week I go talk to someone and the whole point is to figure out my purpose. Um, so when I gave myself that space and I really focused on, you know, what, what do I, what do I want to do? The answer slowly emerged that, oh, I want to work with people. I want to have an impact on people more directly. My, my previous career before becoming a psychotherapist was in academics. So I was uh, studying mass media and politics, and I was uh, sort of on track to become a university professor. Um, and while that was, that was interesting to me, it didn't feel like it had the, 
the impact on people that I wanted. And I'm so interested in people naturally. I love hearing their stories. I love figuring out what's going on with people. And so it really helped me to actually be in psychotherapy, to see what a psychotherapist does, uh, but also to have that space to say, oh, that's what I want. That's what would make me fulfilled To And so I think that's what helped me see my purpose is, is what, what would be enlivening and activating to me and what I would be good at naturally. And also what, what would make me feel like I was doing something positive in the world. That, that's interesting. Do you think that life purpose is connected in a, in a strong way to the Enneagram type? I'm not sure. Probably there's some correlation. Um, probably, you know, there's a, probably a kind of thing, you know, but probably if you get too specific, it becomes less of a correlation, um, but probably so. Yeah. Yeah, because I was listening to you and I was because actually my what I consider my life purpose is very similar to yours. I mean, I'm not going to write three, four books <laughs> um, at least for now. But, you know, my, my idea is really um, have a, a legacy, have an impact in this world, help help people. And, uh, you know, as Baden Powell used to say, try and leave this world a better place than you found it. That's what I want to do, right? And I can do it. Small steps can be coaching one person, one leader, or in in a broader, you know, um, with a broader approach, and, and there are projects I'm working at, and these kind of things. So it's very similar to yours, despite I come from a different type. You know, as I said, I'm type eight, so probably my the the most natural life purpose would be conquering the world or these kind of things. Uh, I'm just kidding, um, but yeah, something something more related to to having control on on a, on a lot of things. Um, but I found I found it interesting, um, and I think there might be actually a correlation, maybe a, a, a more subtle way. Not really the life purpose, but probably the approach to life purpose. That's where the enneagram type is more has a, a greater influence and. Uh, or maybe, the, or maybe the deeper motivation, like you and I can both want to work with people and have an impact, but we might be doing it for slightly different reasons. Yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. 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 And that's where the type comes from, right? It's, it's the old instinct that you have and uh, the motivation that, that you have. And that's, that's the beauty of it. And well, going back to the Enneagram, are we born with a type? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I can't prove it. So I'll just say this is my opinion and what mm -hmm. I think is true. And that is, I think we're born with our type. Yeah, I don't think it develops. I think we come into this world as our type. And one piece of evidence, a general piece of evidence I might point to is if you, if you know little kids, you know, little kids tend to be who they are from the start. And it, little kids tend to be very, you see their individuality uh, from an early stage, even though, of course, our early experience of life and our parents especially has a big impact on how our personality expresses itself, I do think we're born as a particular type. Uh, there is a book I already mentioned a couple of episodes ago that is uh, The Soul's Code. I don't know, I'm probably you've read it. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, 
that's actually uh, an interesting book and it's uh, very technical. So it's if you're a psychotherapist, <laughs> you read it, you can read it more uh, in a more uh, holistic way than I do. But it's the, the, the main theme is that we are born with a with with a kind of a mission if you want mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that you will achieve your objective whatever you have the, the the author calls it the accord right so you are like there is something you're very good at and you there is the universe will try to make it happen but of course life and other things your parents first and the environment will be growing up and the, the these these factors might help or not teachers mm -hmm. friends uh, partners, everything might collide and and not allow the acorn to really bloom and let you grow and be the person that you were meant to be. I think it's a beautiful way to to get it. And, and of course, the author. I don't remember his name. I'm very bad with names. But uh, the author, uh, the author, of course, makes a lot of examples and uh, tells a lot of stories of people showing how they were born in a place where the acorn was pretty much um kept you know away but then the, 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 he found a way it's like it just it just came out because he could not resist anymore and there are other people who we will never know because um they they, they found in the worst situation or and they were not probably um they, they were not like enough now let's say that there is always a component of luck and and, and occasion it's it's a, a great book. I already talked about it on, on, on a previous episode, and I found it fascinating. It's a, it's a fantastic story. It resonates with what you just said, right? Uh, it's it's finding the life purpose, it's finding your passion, it's finding what you're good at. It's not just the talent. It's really more your passion than your talent. Talent is something something a little bit different than than that. Um. Well, what is what is that you want to, what is your vision? What is that you want to achieve? I mean, I understand your life purpose. What is, what is that you're, you're, you really want to achieve in your life? You're doing a lot of things, right? Um, as I, I mentioned all of them, but what is, what is the goal that you have? If you want to, if you look at yourself five years, 10 years from now, what is mm. that you want to achieve? Mm. I think, and to inspire and support as many people as possible to kind of wake up to, you know, the way that we tend to sleepwalk through life if we're not careful, you know. So, you know, the more people can who can wake up and be more conscious and aware of themselves and take responsibility for themselves, the less you see some of the negative things that are happening in the world. You know, if you look at you know, wars or people hurting people, so much of the time it's coming from unconsciousness. Uh, it's coming from ego. And so I guess I just want to do as much as I can in this life, um, as much as I'm able to help people understand that there is this possibility to wake up and to be more aware and through being more aware and conscious to you know, live a better life to be liberated from unconscious habit and things that hold you back and to have a better impact on the people around you and to be more loving and connected with uh, with other people. I think now by coincidence, this is also the wake up is also in one of the title of the book that you are co-author. I have it somewhere. 
Yeah. Right, but the, the, the book you co-authored with Rania Pais. Um, yes, the Eddie Graham guy that you're picking yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the guy to wake up, right? Um, oh, here you go. Here you go. I show you for whoever is looking at the at the, at the, uh, the video, the Enneagram Guide to Waking Up. And it's actually uh, a fantastic book. And I, I was reading it together with the other book that you uh, wrote, The Nine Times of Leadership, trying to, you know, so the, I, a more leadership focus um, approach and um, and the other book is is wider is broader but it's um there are of course a lot of a lot of things that are intertwined and they go together of, of course i mean that's that's how the types are so it was a beautiful reading both books that uh, that and that's what brought, led me to to um, decide to become an enneagram practitioner what is though the one thing I'm not sure you can, you're going to answer this question, but what is the one thing you don't like about Enneagram? Mm. <laughs> well, I would say there's nothing I don't like about the Enneagram itself. Uh, yeah. Although the way I would say there's, there are things I don't like about the way the Enneagram has been brought out in the world. Let's say it that way. So the Enneagram movement or the Enneagram um, as it gets communicated, I think Many times it's communicated in a superficial way um, or it's communicated, the types get stereotyped um, mm -hmm. so that it becomes a weapon or uh, something that creates more misunderstanding than understanding. Um, I think sometimes people sort of play with it as like it's a game instead of using it in a deeper way. Um, so I think that's something that can be hard to see. Um, some some of these Enneagram memes that sort of say, you know, give the message that certain types always do certain things a certain way uh, in, in ways that actually I think it makes it harder for people to access the system and to use it to grow. So I would say when it gets used superficially or too casually or or um, irresponsibly. Yeah, one one way I think is used in, a, in wrongly is as a justification you know like people say oh, i'm a type eight exactly. i'm a type three you know i'm a hyper achiever that's what i want that's what i like what can i do about it that's the whole point yeah. <laughs> there are tons of things you can do about it and it's not like any any underground type and there are actually for each type there are three subtypes we have not mentioned this but it's it's more i mean it's Enneagram is uh, more, much more articulated than how we describe it today. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's the, that's it. That's your, as we mentioned earlier, that's your freedom path. That's your growth path. Everything starts from the will to grow. Self-awareness is fantastic. You can be 100% self-aware. I mean, probably no one is 100% self-aware. Probably Buddha was. Um, but then you need to do something about your weaknesses, about your blind spots, about your flaws, about what's, what is not good for you and not good for the people living, working, dealing with you. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just you. That, that's our point, right? Because of course, you know, um, a, a type eight like me, will, it will say, oh, well, I like to control things. What can I do about it? Well, maybe other people would like to have more freedom, for example, you know? <clears throat> more empowerment. That's something that I have learned. 
have learned also in my career and something else well of course you know it's empowerment is something that's hard for me you know like delegation it's it is an issue and that's why it's an issue for many other leaders i guess yeah 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 definitely yeah so um that's the power of the anagram. That's also the trap of anagram. And probably you're right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's seen in a superficial way, stereotypes and much more than that. But it's beautiful because I've seen many people just saying casually, oh, yeah, I'm a type three. In many occasions, one day I was in a conference, there was this lady and she was like, oh, you know, in the conversation, normally I'm a type A, so I like this. And then that was amazing. I don't know if anyone understood what she was saying, because, of course, there are many other uh, personality models that you can use. Mm -hmm. And talking about this, what makes Enneagram better than the others, if you want to make a comparison? That's a good spot for Enneagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the Enneagram it is really a growth model. Like some, some of the personality typologies out there, especially the ones used in business, tend to be a little bit more about identifying differences between people. So you can understand each other better, which is fine, which is good. But I think the Enneagram is really a growth model. It's really about transformation. It's really about how to disidentify with something you've mistakenly identified with your personality and grow beyond it. Um, I also think that it's, um, you know, it's so deep, you know, as much as much time and energy as you want to put into using the Enneagram, you will get more and more and more out of it. Um, it's connected to ancient wisdom tradition. You know, it really goes back, you know, thousands of years. I mean, not the Enneagram symbol itself, because I think that had to be kept in secret for a long time. So it's just so deep. It's connected to, again, uh, you know, wisdom that talks about geometry and numbers and, and the laws of the universe and, um, so much is underneath it and behind it. Now, you don't necessarily have to get into all that. Um, you can just use it as a growth tool and it can be something you use in coaching, for instance. Um, but I think if you want to go deeper, that possibility is there for you with the Enneagram. Whereas with other approaches, other models, it might not be so, it's like there's only so far you can go. Yeah, and that's the depth is what gave me a lot of aha moments, you know, reading what are the, the my type and reading what, what are the the, the, uh, the limits of people with the same type that, I, that um, I am or the subtype. I was like, oh, it's really revealing a lot, a lot about ourselves. And we can see things through, through a different light. Actually, through uh, we see the light. <laughs> we, we finally see the light. I'm probably, I don't want to exaggerate, but it's how I see. That's why I do recommend Enneagram to all the people approaching me for for coaching, because also as you mentioned, it's a it's a great way. It's a great tool you can use for coaching. It's you can establish a path, a pattern for growth and be the person they want to be. Well. There is time for our last question. That is, um, Patrice, what, what is the suggestion we'll give to people approaching you and asking for some good recommendation to become a good leader? Mm -hmm. um, a little bit like I said before, I think um, to become a really great leader, I think it helps to develop your emotional intelligence and to become more conscious of yourself 
And in doing that, often a natural byproduct is becoming more humble, you know, realizing it's not all about me. It's, it's, um, and, and recognizing what some of your blind spots are and learning to learn about that and integrate those blind spots so that you can um, add more things to your toolkit. So you're not just looking at 360 degrees of reality through the narrow slice of your, that your personality, uh, personality type kind of focuses you on. Um, so I think just learning more about yourself, developing more self-awareness and self-understanding um, and being really open to understanding others, you know, it, you know, increase your emotional intelligence, increase your level of self-understanding and humility. I think that goes a long way. And I've really seen powerful things happen when leaders model these kinds of healthy behaviors. Um, you know, it, you can, a leader can tell people things that they want them to do, but if the leader tells a story about their own experience, it's like everybody is touched and everybody is affected in a much deeper way. So if you're someone who can really tell a story about your own growth, about what you've realized about yourself, um, that kind of thing makes you, you know, 10 times more powerful as a leader. That's because people will see the human side of a leader. Exactly. And one thing I would add to that when I, so I did some group facilitation training at Stanford Business School. And here's something that this, the experts in leadership at the Stanford Business School always used to say. They used to say, the mark of a great leader is someone who has the ability to selectively self-disclose vulnerability. And I want to add a layer. It's not just showing vulnerabilities, but also leading through vulnerability. That means taking actions, being proactive, right? That is the first good habit for successful leaders. <laughs> being proactive, do something about it. You recognize your, your weakness and then you do something about it. You show that you do something about it. Yeah, you talk about a weakness and then talk about how you're doing something about it. And that can be very powerful for people because, you know, most leaders who aren't so good are too busy avoiding any kind of vulnerability. Um, and if you can go there, there's a lot that you can do and a lot and, and people find you more approachable and uh, more able to more accessible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beatrice, thank you very much for this conversation. It's been a, a pleasure and honor and I've learned a lot about well, first of all, about your story and about the Enneagram. And I've loved how the conversation went through leadership and Enneagram together um, in, a, in a combined approach. And of course, you know, self-awareness is it is the starting point for successful people in, 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 any, in any branch, in any aspect of our life. So thank you very much for this enlightening conversation. And it's been really a pleasure to have you as a guest. Mm, thank you, Stefano. It's been a big pleasure talking with you and being on your podcast.